Hello and welcome to another podcast of Father and Joe. I'm Joe Rocky here with Father Boniface Hicks. And Father, I want to continue the, the questions that we got um, from basically high schoolers out there. And since it's a questions of the faith that we all have at some point or another, some of them may have been taught to us correctly, some of them may have not. But to go through the importance of these are real questions affecting us in everyday life, is a part of what we're trying to accomplish in this cast, but b just a good idea uh, to follow up with stuff we may not have have followed in. So to to go with the next question here, it kind of leads off of what you were explaining in the last episode when you were talking about how the church has contributed to science, and one of the direct examples you gave were about how the church has uh, discovered genetics. And that we were some of the first people who do there. So the question we have here is, how does the church feel about evolution? Um, yeah, that's a kind of classic question. Um, and uh, I'm always uh, inclined to be a little bit provocative when I talk about this because the dogma of evolution is so unconditionally and unquestioningly accepted by everyone that I like to poke at it a little bit and remind everybody that you know evolution is a theory and you can talk to any scientist and he can validate that evolution is a theory it's not dogma <laughs> so lest uh, lest we approach it from that perspective I like to push back and say prove evolution to me you know there's there's no there's abs there's no evidence that we were apes you know just because two things look like each other you know an, an android phone and an iphone look like each other but it doesn't mean that the iphone developed from the android phone you know just anyway so I, i'm not going to go too far down that road because i'm also not equipped to start poking holes in evolution but the point is that there there are some there is some missing evidence you know we don't actually have certain records of uh, ancient things and We've never seen the kind of macro evolution take place that's claimed. And um, anyway, it's it's a theory. So lest uh, lest we dogmatize it up front and then judge the church based on uh, how much she gets behind evolution, I think that's a false approach. But having said that, the we can accept. Uh, a theory of evolution that's very much coherent with Catholic theology, namely that God is still the architect of evolution, if there is evolution. That uh, So how did these random mutations take place? Couldn't they be divinely guided mutations? And in fact, couldn't God have designed things to begin with so that they would mutate and develop in the ways that, in fact, they have mutated and developed. We have to remember that randomness and random mutation is only random from our perspective. Nothing is random from God's perspective. He sees the whole picture at the same time. He's outside of time, and he's designed everything. So there's no reason. And there are a number of Catholic theologians. There are lots of Catholic scientists. There's lots of harmony between Catholic teaching and evolution. The things become divergent when we say that uh, when we have a kind of atheistic model of evolution, which is trying to rule God out of the equation and say, 
no, no, everything is just random. It's all just random. And then you can, uh, you know, get the specific statistics from scientists. I mean, the chances of things developing as they have developed just so that life could exist from total randomness is like, you know, one in 10 uh, to the 30th power or something like that. I mean, just some astronomical number of, uh, uh, of uh, improbability that things would just randomly develop the way that they have. You know, scientists will, will sometimes, or people will sometimes say, this is the, you know, the kind of big number randomness that, that tends to drive evolutionary thinking is like, oh, well, if you put a, a monkey at a keyboard for long enough, eventually it'll come up with Shakespeare. Like, no, it won't. I mean, you don't just, you don't just get Shakespeare from random combinations of letters. That doesn't happen. So the idea that if you just give it enough time that randomness will generate, you know, anything beautiful, it's not real. So the idea that you can kind of rule out any sort of design, any sort of meaning that there's some ordering of the chaos is a little bit irrational. And, and I think, you know, I don't know a lot of evolutionary scientists, to be honest, the, the one, uh, grad student that I had spoken with who worked in biology and did some of the data collection for evolution talked about how irresponsibly the professor she worked for would throw out data that didn't fit the model, which is, you know, the, the worst sin of science. But uh, her claim was that a lot of evolutionary science does that. I can't validate that, but uh, she had real evidence for that. Anyway, the point being, uh, you know, there's certainly evolutionary scientists who recognize you know, randomness doesn't, you can't just give things a large amount of time and claim randomness and claim that, you know, anything com can come out of that. No, uh, an ape put in front of a keyboard will keep breaking the keyboard and keep punching in nonsense infinitely. There's, there's not going to be a sort of progression towards something ordered in that because there isn't an ordering principle in a chimpanzee or in an ape that's going to lead to Shakespeare. There's an order, ordering principle in human beings that leads to things that are beautiful and meaningful and truthful and good. So there are some philosophical problems that people encounter when they sort of uh, blindly use evolution to justify a lot of things. And I'm not saying evolutionary scientists do that. I mean, they're, you know, they are using certain models and generating certain theories and finding some evidence for that and various uh, aspects of the fossil record and they're finding some um, you know developments for that and in, in terms of human dna and and the way that things uh, reproduce and in fact you can get some macro evolution through just adjusting some parts of dna and things like that so uh, I, i'm certainly not trying to undermine or making any radical claims about evolution being wrong either. Although, as I say, it's a theory. It's not a sort of proven, irrefutably proven dogma that we are required to believe or we're not adequately human or something like that. It's kind of the way that it's presented. And and uh, it's not, not helpful, I don't think, to, um, you know, to adequate thinking. But anyway, just to come back to the point, uh, there's nothing specifically contrary to a properly theistic uh, understanding of evolution that, you know, God is still involved in the process and actively involved in the process. And that's, that's all that we teach in the faith is that God has created everything out of nothing, first of all, that 
evolution has to have a starting point. And certainly God has brought about the starting point, but God has also brought about the constant uh, loving attention that's guided everything in creation and then in the development of creation and the unfolding of, of creation throughout the last, you know, whether you're a young earth creationist 6,000 years or, or six billion years or whatever the, the latest theories are about the, the age of the universe. Uh, in some sense, it doesn't matter to Catholic theology. Uh, again, just as long as we acknowledge that God is a loving part of the process and he's bringing order out of chaos. And he's doing that in a specific way that is uh, ordered toward, uh, you know, some has some beginning and has some ending and and human beings are the crown of that creation because we're made in his own image and likeness and we're made to be like God. And then, you know, we also participate in that process of the unfolding of creation. And Pope Francis certainly made that point very strongly, as did Pope Benedict and Pope John Paul before him, but Pope Francis actually with an encyclical on the social impact of caring for our common home. And so primarily a social teaching and uh, uh, a teaching about uh, yeah human society and uh, and ethics but also recognizing that the way that we care for creation the way that we care for our common home matters and uh, so we participate in an ongoing way and what species are going extinct and maybe caring for species that are emerging in some way as there are some small evolutionary developments that take place even within the context of our, our lifetimes. So, um, yeah, I think all of that is an acknowledgement of, of the truth that we can certainly embrace in some evolutionary theories. Um, and, you know, we let scientists unfold those facts there using the scientific method in a fruitful way that we can, we don't have to judge, you know, we can just let the the method speak for itself, but, but it's good to acknowledge its limits also. And part of what you just said there that, that resonated with me is something we've discussed a little bit before is, is the humility element, you know, to, to think that we're the ones who are supposed to be able to figure everything out and wrong is, is a lack of humility in its purest sense. Um, you know, there's many times in there in the Bible where it says, you know, don't compare yourself to God. You are not God. And, and that's obviously part of, of what makes Christ so important and why there's an entire faith built around him is that he was God here on earth. So the next question actually goes around that, um, that topic there, which is how do we know Jesus was real? So that's the next question from a, that we have posed to us here today. Yeah, how do we know Jesus is real? Um, well, there are a couple of dimensions, depending on on how the young person intended that question. I mean, how do you know that Caesar was real? Um, well, you know, there's a certain historical science that says this person existed. Uh, in fact, we have much more documentation that Jesus was real than that Caesar was real. So if we believe that uh, Caesar was real or Cicero was real or a variety of other ancient figures, then we should believe that Jesus was real. Now, the probably the question that was intended is how do we know that Jesus is God, <laughs> which you were just referencing? And 
Uh, and that's ultimately a question of faith. So that's something that requires an act of trust. There's, there, are, there are a whole realm of truths that are accessible to our unaided reason. So we have certain methods like science or like historical sciences. We have methods of documentation and acknowledgement. You know, I mean, how do you, you can move into a whole philosophical category and say, how do you know that I'm real? I mean, you know, it, it's a, there's a whole dimension of how we know anything that this is building on. But presuming that we're not going to push into those directions and we'll acknowledge that what our senses tell us and what other people have recorded for us uh, is real. Okay, there's a certain amount of realness that we can acknowledge with unaided reason. It sort of requires more skepticism to believe it's not real than to believe it is real. And the fact that Jesus was an historical person, a real person, we have enough evidence for that uh, within biblical literature, but <clears throat> also outside of biblical literature. So um, that's one thing. But how do we know that Jesus was God? Well, ultimately, that's an, that's an article of faith. That's a way that we know other things. Um, you know, there are a number of truths that require trust. We know that Jesus was God because God has revealed that to us. And he's revealed that in a supernatural way through uh, Jesus, through the apostles, and through the church. And then we have to choose whether we're going to trust that or not. Do we trust that sort of truth, that truth of revelation. Now, in the one sense, it's more trustworthy because it's revealed by God, but it's not accessible to scientific investigation. There isn't a mathematical proof that I can construct for it. And so there's always going to be room for doubt. And that's built into it because God doesn't want to force that truth on us. He wants our trust. He wants our free choice. He wants our hearts and not just our minds. He doesn't want to leave it as an abstract and cold truth. He wants it to be an act of trust and an invitation to relationship. And so that's where he leaves a, a realm of freedom, a truth that has some room for freedom in it, because that truth is inviting our love. And love always requires freedom. If it were a truth that were irrefutable, then it would force itself on us. <clears throat> it doesn't require any love to believe that China exists or that India exists, or that Japan exists, or whatever, that, that Germany or Italy exists. It doesn't require any love. But to believe that Jesus is God requires our love. It requires us to believe that what he told us is true. And what Jesus, the historical person, told us is that he's God. He didn't, you know, he has some evidence for it. His death and resurrection, we can see the impact that it's had on humanity over the last 2,000 years. We can see the way that it influenced the apostles to the point of laying down their lives. We can see the evidence of miracles in the past and in the present. We can see a lot of evidence, but it doesn't force us. It always leaves room for our free choice. It leaves room for our trust because it, God wanted it to leave room for our love. If there's no freedom, there's no love. If there's no trust, there's no love. And ultimately, God wanted our love more than just our intellectual adherence to uh, something that kind of forces itself on us. So, so that young person can rightly protest, you can't prove it to me. And I'll say, you're right. And you can't disprove it to me either. And he'll say, you're right. And so what do we do? Well, we have to make a choice. 
there's a choice that is placed before each one of us. And I can't make that choice for somebody else. The facts don't make that choice for us. We have to make that choice from our freedom and from our own hearts. That's, that's a great answer there, obviously. Um, so, so I, the next question I have lined up that goes along that lines is obviously as Catholics, um, we have a different religion than, than other ones. Um, mostly with how we view the relationship with the Eucharist. Uh, so the question here along those lines are, if you're not a Catholic, can you go to heaven? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, these are, these are all of the, uh, the kind of typical questions. It's great uh, that the, the seminarian friend of ours uh, went around and asked high school students for their typical questions. And sadly, questions that, um, are not answered in, in maybe in their religious education. Probably they are, but uh, maybe part of the thing is, I don't know, maybe the answers don't stick or something. Um, anyway, uh, I've, you know, certainly answered these things so many times and you, you could actually just type that question into the internet and you'd find the same answer. Uh, <laughs> it's just, everybody keeps answering some of these questions and, and somehow it doesn't reach people. But uh, yeah, so what we say is that Catholicism, uh, through the sacraments, the teaching of the church, uh, and the moral life, those are the, th the three elements of the catechism, uh, the, the law of, um, of belief, and the law of prayer, and the law of life. So what we believe, how we pray, and how we live, uh, that situates our Catholic faith. The Catholics have a way of doing all three of those things. Uh, certain truths that uh, we believe, certain ways of praying, like the Eucharist and the sacraments, and certain ways of living the, the moral life that's taught by the church. So we call that the ordinary path for everyone for salvation. The Catholic Church teaches confidently, if you live this path, then you go to heaven. This is the path to heaven. This is the path that God has given us. This is the path that we uh, really safeguard to, to make sure that we don't lose sight of it and that we share vigorously with everyone. It's the path for everyone. Anybody who takes up this path, this is the path to heaven. So that's a simple way of saying it. What does the church teach about anybody who's choosing a different path? Well, we just kind of don't <laughs> to say, you know, you're, you want to go a different path. We're not going to say that God's not going to save you. I mean, he's free to do whatever he wants. God is not bound to the path that he has showed us, God can work outside of that. He can do whatever he wants. I mean, really, if, if he wants to raise up and save a bunch of people, he can, you know, it's, it's his choice. He's God. <laughs> he can do what he wants. What we know is that this is the path he has given us. This is the path he has revealed to us. So this is the path that we really hold to, keep our eyes on and share with everybody. Uh, there's nobody who can't be saved through this path. It's, it's for everybody. It's not like there are some people who are kind of Catholic saved people and some people who are some other saved people. No, no, everybody, this path is for everyone and, and we want to share it with everyone. What happens to people that go their own direction? We hope for the best. The catechism says we entrust them to the mercy of God. We don't say that they're definitely condemned. We don't say that they're definitely saved. We say God can do what he wants. That makes sense. So it's kind of like it's 
almost out of your jurisdiction, if you will. Um, That's a nice way to say it. Yeah. Uh, so, so that, that, that certainly makes sense. Um, the next question, um, it's just proof that he did these questions recently. Um, cause this was not a problem for me when I was growing up, but apparently it's a thing now. How does the church deal with, um, people who believe that their genders are fluid and stuff of that nature? Yeah, with a lot of compassion. Uh, I mean, there's a real psychological uh, condition known as gender dysphoria, where someone has a, a real um, internal anguish, uh, a sense, a feeling, a, a, even a conviction perhaps, that although they're, uh, they have the genitalia of a, the, the DNA of a man or a woman, that uh, inside, they feel like the opposite, and uh, gender dysphoria is pretty rare, ultimately, and uh, there aren't real convincing treatments for it to help resolve that. It's a, certainly, a, we would consider it a cross to be born. I mean, everybody has something wrong with them. Mm -hmm. uh, all of us are falling apart to one degree or another, but it's a particularly painful condition, uh, you know, but so are other other mental conditions, psychological conditions. So, but we try to help somebody to carry that cross with a lot of compassion, and uh, and support them, and you know, believe them and love them. So, we would not counsel. I'll use the strong term, but it's what it is. You know, to have a sex change operation would be mutilation of the body that God has given us, has made us with. And so uh, we wouldn't counsel that. And we wouldn't counsel hormone treatments that would try to change that body either. Um, you know, the kind of destruction of the body that way is ultimately going to be problematic and has proven to be. Even the, the rate among people who have had those kinds of sex change operations, there's a very high suicide rate. You know, there's a there are a lot of problems that go with that. So uh, I, I, societies, I mean, I think a, a well-intentioned desire to support people who are suffering in a particular way um, has taken things in a direction that's not so helpful for the people who have gender dysphoria. Furthermore, a lot of people who don't have gender dysphoria, but now because it's a kind of option that society has given us and promoted are sort of asking these questions that aren't really healthy to ask. And it's creating problems, a lot of problems, really, and a lot of division and, and a lot of other issues. So uh, there's a normal sexual confusion in the teenage years, you know, when, when hormones are raging, when people are going through puberty and the, the confusion of high school and all the social dynamics that are there in the saturation of a lot of sexually explicit stuff in our society and uh, and then put into all of this confusion is this idea like, oh, maybe you're the opposite sex or maybe you're attracted to this sex or that sex or this, you know, there's a lot of confusion that's being put in there that's really doing a lot of damage, a lot of disservice to people who are, you know, naturally confused and there's a lot of stuff going on with. And uh, I, I would say it's uh, it, it's pretty uh, 
irresponsible to introduce some of these ideas, especially to children who are very vulnerable. We recognize on the one hand how vulnerable minors are, and then on the other hand, we introduce ideas that are have lasting, like lifelong impacts on them. I mean, when somebody gets a sex change or starts taking hormone treatments or even starts to identify in a particular way as a teenager, that has lifelong consequences. And we would say on the one hand, they're not ready for lifelong consequences. We wouldn't let them get married and make a lifelong commitment or enter a religious order or be ordained a priest and have lifelong consequences. And yet we allow them to do make these kinds of proclamations and even certain kinds of treatments. So anyway, I'm sure there are people that would object and, and maybe with things that I'm not thinking of and with data that I don't have access to, and I would be happy to have that conversation. I don't uh, question my own statements. I just don't want to set, set up a straw man either. But anyway, the, there's a lot of there's a lot of problematic stuff in the way that these things are uh, are going about. I, uh, you know, I've had a couple of personal interactions with people. One uh, man who become a be, you know did the sex change things and and uh, changed his body as much as possible into a woman's body. Uh, one woman who uh, took the various uh, steps, measures, and and went the opposite direction, and I found it really problematic. The uh, the man who talked to me basically had some you know had some different emotional things and was very abrupt and was uh, kind of harsh and created problems in and felt you know, through his therapy that if he identified as a woman, it would make him more gentle and empathetic and would bring out a softer side of him and he would be able to deal better with, with life and with people. And it's like, well, yeah, but do you have to take hormones to do that? I mean, if you have it in you, can't you develop that? And anyway, I didn't talk for a great length of time uh, with him or her or whatever the proper pronoun is at this point, but um, just seemed really problematic to me that that would be the reason. It wasn't even a gender dysphoria, actually. It was just like, I can get along better in life if I make this radical change to my person. The girl that I know who became a man felt really insecure and vulnerable as a woman, and that had to do with a, a number of things from home and you know, treatment from her father, stepfather, males in the family. She felt very vulnerable and threatened as a woman. And she felt that by becoming a man, she would feel safer and be able to deal with life better. Again, I don't, I think that's really problematic. It's a pretty major deal to go through for those kinds of reasons. But anyway, so, you know, the, there are brief interactions. They're a little bit anecdotal and I, but but maybe shines a light on something that's pretty radical, like sex change and being used for things that could be dealt with, need to be dealt with in other ways. They're kind of masking problems rather than really dealing with them, using technology and um, medicine, pharmacology in order to deal with problems that really should be dealt with through love and compassion and counseling, you know, um, so... Yeah, so that's, uh, 
I think in terms of, you know, how the church deals with these things, Pope Francis has been very strong about the dangers and the ways that I describe them. He calls it ideological colonization, that we're really colonizing, we're taking over, not we, but the, the gender ideology people are taking over the minds and spaces, educational spaces, governments, society. They're colonizing them with their own ideologies that I think are inherently problematic and the church i think would would say is is inherently problematic so some thoughts about that sure we went a little bit long on today's episode here um so we'll definitely be with you again here next week and we thank you guys all for helping us grow and spread the cast thank you